As was mentioned previously, what a delight it is that we can assemble together this evening, even as we noted in the lesson this morning, the importance and the characteristic attached to assembly periods, how vital, how essential. And tonight, as always, seemingly is the case, we're blessed not only with a good number of our membership, but visitors who've come our way. And we certainly would like you to know we're thankful for your presence. And we would invite you to appreciate with us the desire that's ours to simply worship the Lord in spirit. And of course, in truth, John chapter 4, verse number 24. Tonight, as we come to a lesson entitled, Houses Built Without the Lord, I would invite you for the next few moments to focus attention, to consider that somewhat unhappy circumstance of houses that are built without the Lord. You may have noted in the lesson text that was read just a few moments ago this evening, some features that in fact we shall extract and look upon with a bit of consideration. Perhaps it's fair to say at the outset that we here at the Pippin Congregation are reading through the entirety of the Word of God this year, and among the chapters we read this past week was the 127th Psalm, and the opening verse of that text is, in fact, the lesson subject for tonight. You may notice as you come to the lower part of that, the concept and the very mention of the word house is a rather familiar one to each of us, I'm sure. We were immediately attached to that thought, a matter of residence, a placement or location in which it's a dwelling place. And immediately any number of other matters come to our mind. We know the Bible frequently makes reference to houses. We understand particularly that both Old and New Testament alike cast a strong spotlight upon it. The books of Proverbs and Psalms perhaps especially so in the Old Testament. But even as you come to the very last statement on that slide, our consideration tonight will be, what's that most well-known likely verse of all? And it's the one that I would invite you to consider this evening. So strong is the wording of it that I would ask you to notice its exact placement at the top of this next slide. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. You'll notice the very opening presentation has reference to, again, a building, a house, and except the Lord be the builder of it. We immediately appreciate exactly that the labor invested in it is said to be in vain. And furthermore, we notice that except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Tonight, as you give appreciation to that particular verse with me, I'm sure we've all heard it so many times We've probably thought about it frequently, prayed to God about it, beseeching His aid that you and I might in fact have a house of which He could be proud and to which His foundation would be easily seen. But you notice in this passage, reference is made to houses that do not have God as the builder, that do not recognize His foundation. And quite frankly, isn't it a sad spectacle to appreciate the description that's found? The labor invested in it is said to be in vain. The watchman over which God is not the one who is keeping it. The labor and the waking hours of the watchman are said to be in vain. It may well be for that reason. Note some of the next thoughts with me if you would. That word house is frequently employed in the Old Testament. And there are times when it has reference to a particular building, a physical edifice that has doors and walls and things like that. In Exodus chapter 12, it's employed in a sense like that. And so it is in Leviticus chapter 14. But you might also appreciate rather quickly 
that Rahab, of course, lived in a house that was built on the city's wall in Joshua chapter 2. It might also be quickly remembered, might it? That that concept, that thought of house also leads us to this one. Isn't it true that the very house of God was recognized as the temple in 1 Kings 5? Those thoughts all lead us to appreciate and have in mind a visualization of this physical structure. But I believe we're all well aware there are other ways and other passages in which that particular word house is employed. And these are certainly those that I would invite you to consider with care. With regard to Abraham, reference is made to his household in Genesis 18, 19. And of them it was said that God felt certain that Abraham would lead them in the way that they ought to go. There clearly there was not a reference to a building. It was not a piece of mortar or wood. It were precious individuals that comprised that household. Not only that, might you consider with me that famous refrain in 2 Samuel 7. There, as the God of heaven expressly identified and directed comments to David, he said, the God of heaven will construct you a house. God did not have in mind, again, a physical edifice, a structure, again, built with wood or mortar or other such things. As the rest of those verses go on to indicate, God had in mind descendants, individuals, humanity, if you will. And God made reference to that as a house. As you think about it from that standpoint and that perspective, look again at how Psalm 127 rings with such a powerful refrain. Except the Lord build the house. Except the Lord guide the structure, the footprints of those that dwell within and comprise that house. They labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord watch the city. Except the Lord keep the city. The watchman stays awake in vain. As you and I think about those attributes, those characteristics, let's apply them in the slides that follow. Not only to what might be regarded as a physical edifice, but far more importantly, to a house in which there are precious individuals like you and me living, individuals such as ourselves and our children. This slide leads us on that way. What does the Scripture have to say about a family that chooses to order itself, its ways, its directives, its approaches along a pathway that is separate and apart from those proclamations of the truth of God? What does the Scripture have to say about it? What kind of picture is pictured for us? That all begins with some significations like these. We each are well aware... As we read the Word of God, we are so keenly made aware of the fact that God has thoughts in mind and directives for you and for me, not only to seriously consider, but He expects them to be kept. And He expects them to be obeyed. And that includes responsibilities of members of households, members of houses. What if a family member chooses to shirk that responsibility? Consider with me for a moment. I'll start with fathers. Men, the Word of God directs to you and to me some features, some attributes that we must ever keep before us. He does so in languages that are just sampled with verses like I've asked you to consider. You might again notice we start in Ephesians 5 verses 23 and 25. 
the responsibility that you and I have as it relates to that lady that's our wife. Doesn't he say, especially husbands, love your wives. That's a commandment given to us as firmly and as thoroughly as any other commandment in all the sacred text. Love your wives. That love is to be appreciated perhaps in words like Colossians 3, verse number 19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. We ought not to behave toward them in some way that encourages their bitterness, to encourage them to in fact have less than rightful submission and respect toward us. We should, you see, appreciate that we're to love them even as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. To borrow the language of Ephesians 5.25, that kind of love will in fact lead her to appreciate the strong place she has in your life and the strong place she has as a vital member of the family. It is fair to say that as we think about those attributes of husbands, it doesn't end there. With regard to children, if a family is blessed with children, isn't it also said in Colossians 3.21, fathers... We're told on that occasion that we should be of a mindset to encourage them and not, in fact, lead them to be discouraged. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. A child can rather easily appreciate a father, that is to say any parent, who behaves in one way but says something else. And quite often that kind of behavior leads them to appreciate in us an air of hypocrisy, an air of less than genuineness. And in so doing, if they see partiality between us and our children, treating one child more specially, more differently than another, they will be discouraged. They will have less than proper adoration for us as the rightful leader of a family. Dads, may we never behave in such a fashion as that. We often remember in the Old Testament especially what evil was brought about as favoritism in one way or another was shown. What happened in the very family that you and I remember as the descendants of Abraham. We recall especially his grandson. Notice what happened with regard to Isaac. Isaac had his favorite. It was Esau. Rebekah had her favorite. It was Jacob. And we remember what strained moments were brought about in that family as a result of that kind of existence. You and I should appreciate that despite the fact that children are different, they have different personalities. They have different attributes whereby they need guidance and direction, but you and I as parents must ensure that we treat them without partiality. Didn't Paul write for all of us in 1 Timothy 5.21, let nothing be done with partiality. Maybe in fairness to that, let's turn our attention to mothers for just a moment. Ladies, God also directs thoughts to you just as surely as these verses are given for our consideration. You're told to love your husbands. You're told to submit to them. To borrow the language of Ephesians 5.22 as well as Titus 2 verse number 4. As you submit and as you love your husband, you also love your children, of course, and you desire nothing but for them except that they would be the strong Christian citizens that God would have them to be. And that love is embodied in both father and mother, among other things, as careful instruction, and that even includes discipline. We're told in Proverbs 13, 24, that if we spare the rod, we do not love our children. 
that runs counter to that which is often proclaimed in our world. Some claiming I love him or her so much I can't discipline them. That means you don't love them. That means you're happy to see them continue in the mistakes they've made to this point and those mistakes likely will only worsen as the years pass. Might we fairly say, youngsters, God also has some instructions for you. Honor your father and your mother. Ephesians 6 verse 2. Verse number 1, the preceding one, so powerfully directed thoughts like these. Obey your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise in the family. May we appreciate then as one seeks to work together with the other members of the family. That is a part of helping a house be built with the Lord. We begin to see what happens when it's not built with Him. It is to this we might well appreciate that powerful foundation described as marriage. The Bible has so very much to say about it. Thoughts that lift us to such greater heights than what we see so often acclaimed in the world about us. Marriage isn't it so often looked upon with a bit of disdain, a bit of uncultured matter by which we simply tolerate it, but we don't lift her up to the gigantic status the Scriptures do. Jesus even visited in John chapter 2 the nature of that particular marriage. And notice it was on that occasion he performed his first miracle, turning the water to wine. John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. It was on that occasion we remember that there he often portrayed a special nature of just how important that attribute of marriage is. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Matthew 19 6. Today we see putting asunder so very frequently. We see it so often that it seems as though culture has become somewhat numb to it. We seemingly portray it as the norm, and yet this book says, Whosoever putteth away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whoso that marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Matthew 19.9 those statements are still found in this book and no interpretation of the human family can remove them. No appreciation can lessen the thrust and the force contained in them. As a child grows and sees dad and mother love each other, relying upon one another as they make their way through the difficulties of life, they too will grow to appreciate the desire to find a Christian mate a young lady, a young man with whom they can enter into the marriage bond and the wedded bliss gained thereby will be a blessing not only to themselves but to all who have any connection to that family. God's book says it like this, Marriage is honorable in the all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Hebrews 13, 4. As you and I think about all of those features and attributes, is it any wonder that so many youngsters are growing and reaching the time when they do not know the slightest thing about the formation of a family? They weren't reared in a godly family. They haven't been taught the preciousness of a book like this one. They were never involved in Bible school classes or worship services, and hence they enter into marriage wholly unaware of the dictates and proclamations of Holy Scripture relative to it. And no wonder so many of them fail. No wonder so many of them, when the first crisis arises, when the first great tumultuous moment comes, where do they go for answers? They know not where. 
think about a poem that's entitled The Sculptor. Unfortunately, I do not know the name of the author. But in terms of reminding us as parents of the obligation and responsibility that is given to us, how pointed are its statements? I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded to my will. I came again when days were past. That piece of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it, it still bore, and I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and formed it gently day by day and fashioned it with power and art, a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when years were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impressed bore, and I could change him nevermore. Our youngsters, as they witness and observe you and me today, they are forming in their mind, their very absorptive minds, those features that truly will be the guiding posts and the directives for them through much of their lives. No wonder they need to see in you and I as parents and grandparents and others influences grounded so solidly in the Word of the Lord. May I say, as you come to some of those sad examples from the Bible, we have some direct affirmations of what can happen when a house is built without the Lord. What is said about that gentleman you and I encounter as Abijam in 1 Kings 15.3? Here was the second king of, of the ancient kingdom you and I recognize as Judah. Rehoboam was the first king, and we remember he was the son of Solomon. And yet when the death of Rehoboam is listed and his son usurped and came to be the next reigning monarch, this overwhelming statement is found. He, that is Abijam, walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. Abijam was watching what his dad had done. He watched his sinful ways. He watched his foolish choices. And he followed right in the footsteps of his dad. Our little boys and our little girls are watching us with keenly observant eyes. They know very well if we are what we claim to be. They know very well if we are at home what we appear in public to be. May we recognize then and not make the mistake that Rehoboam made, and may we be wiser than Abijam as well. We notice later in the same chapter, in verse 26, we have there another reference. This time it's to a different monarch. But a very similar strained thing is stated. There you may remember the first king of the northern kingdom was a man named Jeroboam, and he had a son named Nebat. You may notice as you give thought to him on this particular slide, uh, Nadab was his name, I mispronounced it, my apology, that here was a gentleman who again it says he followed in the ways of the errors of his father. He had watched with closeness what Jeroboam had done, and yet Jeroboam was the very one who made Israel to sin. Later we find another example, also rather pointed, that of found for us in 2 Chronicles 33. In the midst of that chapter, we read about a gentleman named Amon. And we also read about his dad, whose name was Manasseh. Manasseh had a long and wicked reign in Israel. His son Amon walked right in the footsteps of his father, engaging in idolatrous activity, engaging in rather wicked behavior. Three examples, they all did the sore deeds of their father. We make a mistake if we don't think our youngsters are watching. 
they are keenly observant. So much so that we certainly cannot hide from them. They know whether we read our Bible or not. They know whether we ever are given to prayer or not. They know whether we, our language is not as it ought to be. And our youngsters know whether we're faithful. We should desire that they see in us an attribute of faithfulness to which they would want to aspire. Do we live that way? A house that's built without the Lord is a sad, sad spectacle indeed. It might well be as you come to the bottom statement on that slide, I thought we'd end on a positive note to this part of the lesson. What might we recollect about Joshua in the closing chapter to that book in the Old Testament? In Joshua 24 verse 15, a text so often remembered by you and by me, as for me and my house, there's that word house again, we will serve the Lord. We find in that language a determination, a dedication, an absolute devotion that was clear to observe. Is it any wonder in Judges chapter 2 that all of Israel and those that outlived Joshua and the next generation were faithful to God? They had seen an example of faithful godly living. May you and I aspire to that kind of behavior. A house built with the Lord is such a strong thing. It's built on the rock of Matthew 7, 24, isn't it? It might well be in light of those things we could also ask questions along these lines. Not only might we give thought to those individuals comprising a family as it relates to the house mentioned in the Word of God. What about that word as it's used in relation to a city, even a nation, perhaps even a country? We do find that that terminology, that language, even has implications relative to that eventuality too. Let me ask you to consider some of these things. Isn't it true the closing part of Psalm 127 verse 1 had said, Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. <clears throat> Except the Lord keep the city. Notice there, there is a direct reference to a city a domicile, an abode in which there are citizenry. And unless the Lord keeps the city, unless He is the one over whom the watchman is recognized, then the physical watchman, the one walking on the city's walls, the one watching from the tower, the man is wasting his time, for the city's already doomed. If the Lord is not the watchman, if He is not the keeper of the city, the city doesn't have any positiveness to which she can look. How often, how often do we find that presentation in the Old Testament? As long as Judah turned her attention to the Lord and watched with faithfulness, she was a blessed civilization indeed. The same was true of Israel. The same was true of other nationalities. Oddly enough, isn't it true? One could even make reference to Nineveh in that light. Here was a nationality of people, Assyrians by which they were known. You and I remember Jonah was sent to preach to her. Jonah ultimately did do that, although he didn't at first. But when he came in Joshua and Jonah chapter 3 verse 2, God gave him this commission, Jonah, I bid thee to preach the preaching which I bid thee to preach. Three times the word preach is used in that single verse. Jonah finally got the message after spending a little time in the belly of a great fish. When he finally came and preached it, they repented from the greatest of them, the king on the throne, to the animals in the pasture, and God spared them. 
they were safely kept for a period of time. Later, the book of Nahum is the sequel to the book of Jonah. The people had stopped repenting. They had stopped turning to the Lord and now they were doomed. God portrayed in the prophet Nahum the destruction of Nineveh and that came exactly as God had said that it would. You see, their time had ran out because they stopped building for the Lord. Let us, you and I, think about the matter then, if we might, as it relates to a nation, a country, a citizenry. As we begin some of these thoughts, I would ask you to begin them in the following way. This has direct implications for the citizenry, the citizens that comprise a nation, except the Lord keep the city. The godliness of a nation doesn't begin with its leaders. It begins with its citizens. You and me, we far outnumber them. The characteristic of a nation, whether it's godly or not, whether it's righteous or not, that is housed by virtue of the citizens. That's you and that's me. After all, we can put in office those that we wish to be there and we can put in place those that are godly or we can also put in place those that are not. Might we fairly then say, it begins with you and it begins with me. As you and I think about that, look at some of these appreciations. That means you and I have the obligation to give thought to and oppose the filth that seemingly can engulf a nationality. There was a time when this nation was far more regarded as a nation of goodness than it is now. Other nations don't look upon us in that way like they once did. I've often been impressed with the words of Charles Crismeyer. He wrote a book that was entitled Preserving a Nation. When I read that, it was a bit disturbing, quite frankly, in places. And at times, Charles Crismeyer, by the way, served as one of the chief religious attendants to the Congress of our nation. In that book, uh, after his research was done, he made this observation. You and I can appreciate that civilizations all through history have risen and fallen. Some of them lasted longer than others. Some lasted only a short time. When you and I think about the country of France, we remember as it ultimately endured the French Revolution, that ultimately almost tore that nation apart. There was a great upheaval in government, an upheaval in morals and ethic character. There was an upheaval in a number of ways. And yet, that nation in many ways did not endure the difficulties well. The time came that a French citizen came to the United States of America. This happened in the latter part of the 1800s. By that time, America, again, was roughly 100 years old, and she also had endured a great trial of difficulty. You and I call it the Civil War. That could easily have rent this country apart and left it in shambles. But we survived. And we seemingly developed a matter of strength in the years afterward that were noticeable to many other nations. And this French person came to our country. He wanted to know how did we endure when France didn't. How did America survive when France was unable to do so with the power and majesty that we had? His statement, his analysis was this. America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be good, she shall cease to be great. 
that was his own words. While he interviewed places here in America, he recognized that from pulpits, the fire and majesty of God's Word was proclaimed with directness, and he saw there was where her strength lay. How does that describe our land today? So different, isn't it? We seemingly look for our strength elsewhere. We look for it in education, not from pulpits. We look for it from military strategy, not from the Word of God. It's looked for and sought for in a variety of ways like mental prowess and not from a thus saith the Lord. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, Proverbs 14, 34. You and I need to appreciate that then a city built without the Lord is a city that has wasted its time in construction. And the watchman has waked in but in vain. No wonder in light of those thoughts, some of these last features and statements from God's Word are so very timely. This, in fact, rings so loudly from 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, doesn't it? Paul said, I will that prayers be lifted up and supplications and matters of requests be made for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Prayers, the opportunity to appreciate the relationship to the Word of God. We as a nation seemingly are marching headlong away from the Word of God. We seemingly have organizations like the ACLU that in fact desire this book to be found nowhere. They desire it to be not mentioned, not considered, not thought, not even put in places of appreciation. We as a citizenry must at least in the characteristics of strength recognize how foolish that choice would be. You'll also notice that famous passage found in 2 Corinthians 8.21 encouraging you and I to always provide things honorable in the sight of all men and to ever think on things that are true and honest and pure and just and lovely and of good report, Philippians 4.8. It may well be that those statements lead us also to these. The construction projects that I have entitled Poor Construction you'll notice, lead us to this final set of considerations. There are times when the Bible reads it in such a way that surely we are not able to miss it. Daniel 4.25 still says that God rules in the kingdoms of men. He can set kingdoms up and He can just as easily remove them. He can establish civilizations and just as easily quash them beneath the overwhelming flood of surrounding nations. Our nation, if we expect her to return to the power that she once enjoyed, it shall only be by a return to the Word of God. It shall only be by a revisiting that which is basically good. Didn't Jesus say there is none good but one? That's God, Luke 18. Might we in fairness say then that any nation will only be blessed as long as she attaches herself to the proclamations of the Word of God. Those attributes descriptive of wholesomeness and soundness in society. Psalm 144 verse 15 says, Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Ultimate happiness, you see, is only found in a responsive obedience to that which is the Word of God. Psalm 128 verses 1 and 2. 
it might well be, these closing thoughts to our lesson tonight still are resounding thoughts indeed. What a blessing is pronounced in Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 to 14 on those peoples that are faithfully obedient to God. But then, beginning in verse 15 and continuing through verse 68 of that same chapter, a lengthy presentation of curses, unhappy circumstances, woeful situations that are promised to those nations that disobey the Lord. You and I, of course, desire to have a house built upon the Lord, be it our families and surely our nation. And I hope this lesson tonight has been a reminder to each of us to think with such care about the responsibilities and obligations given to us as members of a physical family and as those who are members of, of this society, this United States of America. Perhaps in conclusion, we could then say this. We've studied tonight about houses built without the Lord, and it's not a pretty sight. It's a very stressful sight, a sight that's strained as it runs counter to the truth of the Bible. I hope that we each can be thankful for our godly families. I know I'm speaking to many of them. May we continue to thank God for the influence of His Word and the dictates of our mind that has led us in disposition to be obedient followers thereto. But may we say, let us encourage our youngsters so they can know the blessings we do. And may we also encourage those round about us who do not have this blessing that they might come in response to know the same. Perhaps finally, as we think one last time about then the condition of our nation, let's pray for her. Let's pray that we might appreciate again the power and the strength found only in its rightful source. Righteousness found from the word of the Lord. Tonight, what about you and me individually? Are you a faithful member of the precious body of Christ? Jesus, as he spoke about that, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It was true that despite the fact they nailed him to a cross, that did not stop the church from being established. Acts chapter 2. Despite the fact that they treated him with such horror, and with such great difficulty in the scenes surrounding the crucifixion, that did not stop the establishment of the church. Jesus is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5.23. And Jesus will add you to that body upon your initial response to the gospel. You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized. If we could assist you in that way tonight, what a glorious evening for you it shall be and for us as witnesses to that great event. If you have become a member of that precious body, but you have strayed away from faithfulness, maybe you have begun to construct a house that's not built upon the Lord. One by one, you've allowed the devil to remove the bricks of faithfulness and put in some stones that are weak, admittedly, of unfaithfulness. You need to remove those bricks of unfaithfulness quickly and allow Jesus to again establish a strong house on a foundation described like this. Neither is there any foundation other than Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 Tonight, if we could be of assistance to praying for your rededication, for your close tie to the Lord, why not let us do that? Simply come forward and ask us to do that. We'd be delighted to help. If we could do any of these things tonight for anyone in the audience, don't wait. But why not come now while together we stand and sing the selected song?